First Thessalonians, I'm going to have um, Seth in the back. Uh, Pastor Tim asked me to just kind of show this to you real quick. Um, when I say, you know, we've got so far to go in this learning process, you feel like you don't know anything once you get into it, and you always feel that way. But um, um, as a pastor equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry of growing each other up into this fuller knowledge of Jesus and training them to train each other, um, obviously the Bible will always be the foundation of that. Our primary focus is the Bible, but then we've written materials that systematize Bible truth, and we've added other people's good written materials that also systematize Bible truth in a very good way. And um, it's, I feel it's like my job. So like, if I'm working in a factory with you, your name again? Nate. Nate if I'm working with Nate for seven years, and Nate... It's kind of like the story we just heard about Vicky. He finally comes to know Christ as his Savior. Great thrill for me. We go from being really good friends to brothers in Christ. My pastor would have provided for us what we're going to study together for the rest of his life. Now, Nate may not know that, but it settles my heart as a church member where I don't have to dig up and do the Bible study myself when I don't feel equipped to do it right? I'm scared to death to do it. How in the world am I going to lead him? I'll just let pastor train him. So we wrote and we've provided for our people what I would study with Nate really for the rest of our lives together. From milk to meat and everything in between. Our, our little pathway we have on paper for our people, it says from new birth to last breath. So they get the idea of this life on life for life reality that we discuss more in the network session looking at the biblical theology of this. Um, these are just a couple of the materials we've written. Tim held one up. Um, we have that in several different versions of the Bible. Um, there's more than this, but you can get any of these materials if you don't have time to write your own or you don't know what to trust, if it's trustworthy. There's a number of guys here, I think, that have at least tried to use these or are using these. This will at least get you started. And you can put your own logo. You can order these and put your own church logo on them. You don't have to leave at Grace Church. We don't care. Just make it your own so people in your community actually believe this is what your church is doing and it's not a borrowed program from another church. This is actually a culture of what you're doing, if that makes sense. So you can get on there. We also have taken, I believe, both books and put them on an app. It's called the Disciple Life app. And so if people can't get together, someone's on an overseas business trip and they still want a disciple, they can get on it virtually and kind of check each other's work and talk through the truth just over the app, okay? And uh, um, can learn more about that. We got a long way to go with this. We're always building it. We're trying to build an actual online platform now where we're adding all kinds of disciple-making resources from podcasts to videos to even some movies, um, pamphlets, booklets, brochures, books, uh, any quality systematized truth about the Bible we're adding for our people to be able to study. So, you know, before Nate gets saved, he's maybe got a pretty heavy gambling problem and he gets saved. God removes that for his life for a bit. We're studying, studying, studying. Then he's, you know, he's a big Iowa Hawkeyes fan, maybe. No? You're not a sports guy? Oh, you're in Iowa State. My son was this close to playing for Campbell last year, yeah. So anyways, um, let's say he's a big Cyclones fan, 
And uh, man, FanDuel keeps popping up on his phone. How easy is it to place it? Just a real quick bet on FanDuel. You know, Cyclones are playing Iowa here, second game of the year, I think. And um, big rivalry. And he's, ah, I'm going to bet. Right? As in bet. But you know, that one bet turns into, and he does a deep dive. And he's like, how in the world can this happen? God took this away from me, I thought. I'm walking with him. How in the world can this happen? Well, believe it or not, you still do sin when you walk with God. Did you know that? You don't? <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta learn how you do that, right? Walking with God always includes, right, confession and forsaking and um, so it can happen. So anyways, in our relationship, you know, Nate doesn't have to call our pastor, right? Because our pastor's already provided for me and I've shared with him, look, if you ever fall back into this again, we've got some real good Bible material right now, and let's work this out together. And if we can't, through the scriptures, then certainly he and I can go to our pastor, or go to who's discipling me if that's not my pastor, and we can sit down and continue to wrestle this out, or find someone else out in the church that had the same addiction, you know, sin problem, and, and work it out. But we're just trying to constantly equip our people to walk in the word together, and then reach out to their lost family and friends together. Uh, but anyways, thank you, Caleb. Thank you, Seth. And uh, we'll dive back in here too. And, and, and don't, you know, remember how I said that God answers 100% of the time, every time I ask him for a gospel opportunity, he answers it. We've tried to train our children the same way, right? One of the practical ways we try to, again, whether it's 4-H, STEM, arts, sports, whatever, uh, if you're empty nesters, whatever your interests are, you go out into the community to find and build redemptive relationships. Pray for the people by name, by yourself or with your family, multiple times during the week. So for our kids, it was their sports teams and their families. So every night of the week, I was home, right? I would lead my little kids as we're learning this culture in a little five-minute family time at the end of the day. And it would always include gospel testimonies, being thankful for something, a gospel testimony, and then what can we pray for each other about? Those three simple things. So we'd say our family verse. That verse had a little jingle to it. We'd sing the jingle. We'd have a gospel testimony, something we're thankful for. And that's just how we ended every night together. That was never done for me. Didn't know how to do it. That's just how I did it. If you got a better way, great. That's just the way we did it. So our kids began to pray for their teammates on any sports team and their parents. And God continued to give us gospel opportunities with every team, every kid, every parent. Um, that continued all the way through college, high school, college, and now even in the pro realm for Micah. Um, he's on a two-year deal with the Utah Jazz. And, and he's calling me on a regular basis saying, Dad, pray for this teammate. Dad, we're going out to dinner with this teammate. And uh, they've developed a really good redemptive relationship with a kid that was a first-round draft pick, played for North Carolina out of Auburn. And uh, I think runner-up to defensive rookie of the year last year. But nonetheless, um, constantly praying for this fella. And um, Caleb does the same thing now. When he was done with his professional baseball career, he came back to town. He's at Grayson Mentor, and he picked up where he left off with his high school buddies. One of them's married, one of them's not. He's with them every single week. Now with his wife, Abby, continuing to build these redemptive relationships. 
Um, Noah is doing the same thing. He was football at Ohio State. He's finishing up at the ACC. Same thing. Pick a name. Start praying that God will give you that relationship. Emma and her soccer and then track. And now she runs college track in the MAC conference. And uh, dad, pray for her. Dad, pray for her. I've started a Bible study with this other girl that runs the 800. And, and we're meeting in the hotel on this travel. It's just... They, 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 they keep it going when you start small and keep it simple. One of the most profound ways we found to be able to minister to people in redemptive ways with any kid on any one of my kids' teams um, succumbed, their season succumbed to a season-ending injury. That we would find, go out together, we'd shop for a gift, and we'd either go to the hospital or go to the home of that kid and offer to pray with that kid and their parents um, because that's just a devastating thing when you go through a season-ending injury. I had eight orthopedic season-ending injuries before I graduated high school, took away any college or pro prospects that I had. God had different plans for my life, and he made it pretty clear. So, <laughs> I got all the scars to show it. But I knew what it meant to me for people to minister to me in that time of, of grief, and I just thought, wow, what a great way to minister to unsaved people, and God used that. And so there's even people in our church doing that with kids on their sports teams, just loving people where they're at with the needs that they have. Um, I remember one kid, uh, his name's Frankie Schmidt. Um, uh, this was my son's junior year of high school football. And um, whenever my wife and I would go to any, any ball game or whatever, um, even my daughter's soccer games, and that was painful because... I just didn't like any sport that could finish in a tie, and everyone was happy. <laughs> but we still, we still sucked it up and went to soccer games. It's like kissing your sister. It's nil-nil. Hey, it's a moral victory. <laughs> Anyways, sorry. <laughs> My competitive side just kind of not very nice sometimes. Um, we go there and build redemptive relationships, and, and, our, and our people from our church would start to come watch our kids play and we would say, listen, we just really don't want to sit with you at our kids' games. And they would just be wise. Like, well, we really want to be out here just to be around unsaved people. We love you. Uh, we'll see you Wednesday. We'll see you Sunday. <laughs> you know, We'll see you in class or at the fellowship. So our people would still come, but we would always try to find and build redemptive relationships or continue them. I remember Noah's junior year, the second game of the year, it was Menor versus St. Ignatius High School. Big, big rivalry. St. Ed's and St. Ignatius, two big Catholic schools, football powerhouses in Ohio. Um, and um, we're sitting with some of our friends um, that don't know the Lord, and someone came over and tapped me on the shoulder and um, said, are you Mr. Potter? Are you Noah's dad? I said, yeah. And she goes, she, she got tears in her eyes. And she goes, I have to apologize to you. I was like, I've met you once, but I don't know you well. What do you have to apologize to me for? And she goes, well, I don't know if you knew this or not, but since Noah was a freshman on the football team, his teammates have been trying to hurt him. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, Frankie would come home and tell me how they were trying to hurt Noah. And I said, well, why would they try to hurt Noah? Is he being an idiot? Do I need to take care of something, you know? And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. He said, he just doesn't cuss. And they figure if they can get him injured, that they can get him to cuss one time and have a little victory celebration. And I was like, I had no clue. 
And I said, um, so like, is it the whole team? She goes, yeah, pretty much the whole team. Like people that are supposed to block for him let off blocks so they can try to hit his knees. And, and I was like, really? This has been three years into football. I had no clue this was going on. And she goes, yeah. She goes, it kind of got worse because they asked him to go to this party and uh, they wanted to get him drunk at the party and he wasn't going to go to the party. And different cheerleaders have been trying to get him to sleep with them. And he just won't do any of that stuff. They're just trying to get him to mess up. And I was like, well, she goes, and I'm telling you I'm sorry because I think that's horrible what even my son's been involved with. And, and she goes, why, why doesn't he do that stuff? And, and I said, you know, I said, it's really not why, it's who. And I said, I want to sit down, Ron, and I'd love to have you over for dinner. It's really Jesus. I said, he's the only person. It's not me, it's not Rhonda, it's not our church. It's only Jesus that can change a life like that. And I said, Noah's not perfect. He's far from it, you know. But thank you, and I accept your apology, even though it wasn't your fault, you know. And let's get together. Well, um, later on that night and the game's over, Noah comes home. I said, so Noah, has this barely been going on? He goes, yeah. He goes, for three years. I said, why didn't you ever tell me? He said, ah, didn't matter. He said, I just kind of, you know, hit him back and then help him up, you know, and we, we stayed, we stayed teammates. He goes, dad, I'm bigger than most of them anyway. So, you know, I was like, well, no, you should have told me. He said, dad, I got this. It's okay. Have they been successful? <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. But I just want to make sure everything's okay. And he goes, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Well, they, that night in the fourth quarter, now Frankie, Frankie was 6'3", about 302, super quick. This kid had D1 hands, feet, body as a, as a tackle written all over him. In the fourth quarter, he got hurt, and he got hurt really bad, and um, he lost his season. And actually, that, that actually was a, he had to medical re, medically retire ultimately because of that injury. And um, the next day, um, I went to the hospital, you know, and I went out and did some shopping and took his gift to the hospital, and we wept with the family, and, and uh, that was the beginning of a deeper, much deeper dive in relationship with he and his parents. And um, Frankie got out of the hospital. Uh, he developed a staph infection in that knee, and he had to have the whole surgery undone. So he'd have his knee cleaned out and then undone. Then he was on IV antibiotics for six months. He's walking around the high school with an IV in his arm. Um, he uh, was really susceptible to further infection. Nonetheless, six months later, they redid the ACL and... Um, um, anyways, when he... When he came home from getting the infection cleaned out, um, we had called him, knowing I did, just to see if we can go over there and, and see how he was doing. And he did. He invited us in. He's on the IV. He's out of school for a little bit. And um, we shared with him there, again, the good news of Jesus. And that was the day Frankie was born again uh, in a very real, real way. 
Uh, about three weeks later, his mom was born again. And, um, um, and they continued to be discipled at Grace. Um, just on the phone with Frankie on the, way, on the trip out here yesterday at the airport. Um, finishing up school, he feels the Lord may have him headed into a full-time vocational pastoral ministry. So we're working on that. Um, I remember the Sunday of the lockdown, second Sunday, so the third Sunday in March for all of us, it seemed to be a systematic whammy. Um, we had a guy in our church named Joe Jackson who had terminal cancer. Everyone knew that he did before COVID, but we never realized that the Sunday before the lockdown was going to be the last Sunday we'd ever see Joe. And so we had Joe uh, do a video of thank you and goodbye to our whole church, right? A couple weeks after he did that video, he did pass away. Our folks never saw him again. Um, well, we did do a community parade. We did one of those parades, and everyone got a chance to wave goodbye without hugging him. Just He sat in a chair underneath an umbrella, and all the people filed by. But he did the video. Well, Frankie was tuning in live, live stream with his dad, second Sunday after lockdown. And uh, so after I preached, they put Joe up there in, the, in his testimony. He gave his testimony and thank you and all this kind of stuff. And Frankie's, Frankie's sitting there smiling watching Joe because he had gotten to know Joe a little bit at church. And um, his dad looked over at Frankie and he said, how in the world can you smile? We're in a global pandemic lockdown. This guy's going to die. And he's saying goodbye to everybody. Why is he smiling and why are you smiling? And he said, Dad, all I could tell you is just Jesus. I said, there's no, there's nothing in me. There's nothing at Grace. There's nothing in Pastor Tim. There's nothing in anybody that can change a person like Jesus can. And he goes, well, I need to talk to your pastor, you know. And uh, his dad suffered with severe anxiety things. This guy was freaked out by the COVID lockdown. Freaked out by it. Well, later that night, we talked on the phone, and Frankie's dad trusted Christ that night on the phone. And um, we're just trying to tell you these, those things don't happen often. But they happen often enough to keep you encouraged. You know? And you can tell all these stories about gospel opportunities you have that still keep people encouraged. Because you know what each gospel opportunity you have is? It's actually an answer to prayer. It's God hearing you, giving you our Creator giving you an opportunity, right, while you're being trained by somebody else in your church. It's just, it's just really, really cool. So anyways, just a few more stories about what we're actually seeing here uh, in First Thessalonians. We'll move on to, to chapter 2. Remember, we had the, the right start. The foundation is the church with the right place, the right message, the right example, the right influence, and the right hope. And we'll move on into chapter 2 here. We prefaced it last time by saying all that chapter 2 basically is, is a review of Paul's ministry to them so that they can continue to minister to each other in the same way. Right? So in verse 1, Paul reminds them of his uh, right initiative and right approach. This goes clear back to Acts 17. For yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you, the gospel of God amid much opposition. So this was our approach to you. Just keep that 
approach with people in Thessalonica, both within and without the church. It's just a review, a necessary review. Maintain and understand the right motive, verses 2 and 3. Read a little, little bit about that. And then own the right disposition. Own the right disposition. You see that pretty much uh, saturating verses 4 through 12. Not seeking the glory of men, but of God. Um, you get down to verse 7. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. It's a powerful phrase, isn't it? We're not only giving you the gospel, you've received that, but after you've received, heard and received the gospel, what do they get next from Paul? It's a life on a life, right? We, we imparted our lives to you. It's a beautiful thing when people in your church that are discipling each other begin to live life together. Right? They walk each other through the times of greatest joy and through the times of greatest grief. It's not uncommon to get on our people's Facebook feeds and see disciplers and disciplees enjoying birthdays, anniversaries, sometimes camping trips, you know, mourning with them in the hospital or rejoicing with them over the birth of a new kid, and they're typically in the same picture together. They start to live life together. They live the Word of God together. Did you know for most of human history, people didn't have the Word of God to carry in book form? You know when Joshua said in Joshua 1.8, there's a reason why he never mentioned the word read? They didn't have one to read. This book of the law shall not depart out of your, but you should meditate on it. They didn't have it to read. I mean, we know from Nehemiah 8, there was that one time a year Remember post-Babylon? 70 years, they haven't been able to meet at the water gate to bring out the law of the book of Moses and have the elders build that big box and read it to the people. Men, women, and children in the hall could hear one another understanding from littles to olders and from 6 a.m. to noon. They had to remember and have it interpreted, explicated, and applied to the child and then they had to go home and do what? Talk about it a lot, think about it a lot, and live it together a lot. Even when the Bible was put in codex form, for the first time in the 16th century, how many people had one? You know, it really wasn't until the, the, the word came far west where people even had a family Bible, let alone an individual Bible. So when Paul says here, I'm imparting my life to you, that's everything I know, I'm speaking to you and living with you. Remember when he recounts with the Ephesian elders and Miletus, the last time he was ever going to meet with them, he called them together and he says, I was with you for three years, night and day, with many tears, sharing with you the whole will of God. 
in Acts 20. And none of them even had paper to take notes on. Think about how intimate this disciple-making must be. And think about why having, and I'm all for, obviously, the written and preserved word of God in print, but think about how the book in print has been somewhat of a stumbling block in us actually living the word together. Because when anything's codified and put in book form, the tendency is to become more institutional about your learning than relational about your learning. It's okay, we're so glad, we cherish it, right? It's like David talks about in Psalm 19, verses seven to 14, it's the greatest treasure greatest value, nothing tastes sweeter, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, but nonetheless, we've got to be able to live it correctly and with the right disposition. And then verses 13 to 20 here, as we go through this overview, is really about maturing and doing relationships. And that relationship is obviously with the Word of God, verse 13. They were training each other, they were learning from one another, what Paul says here, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you, when you received the word from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And I find verse 14, so there's that ongoing personal relationship with the word and with one another. But then this word mimic is used again here in verse 14. They're following Paul now they're modeling for one another. And all this time they sit in the seat of the learner, learning from other members of other churches too. For you became mimics, imitators of the churches of God in Christ and Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings. Remember we said that was a sub-theme of this whole book. At the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and who drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So Paul describes here a thriving church of owning the word and even learning from other similarly persecuted people to the greatest degree, how they're persevering underneath and through those trials, those gospel afflictions, they're learning from other members of other churches. I know it seems really, really odd, maybe not to you fellows, because there's a certain measure of this going on even on a retreat weekend with your Iowa State Fellowship, but there's a lot that we have to learn from like-minded churches in spiritual growth. Okay. We see it here. And just a reminder to the pastors in the group here that when we sat in seminary and we sat through our ecclesiology classes, we heard the words independent and autonomous a lot. Churches need to be independent and they need to be autonomous. Well, I think we certainly Americanize that independence and that autonomy, because you can't read a simple cursory reading of the New Testament scriptures without seeing churches interdependently ministering to one another and strengthening each other and learning from each other. And may that always be. 
uh, an outgrowth of our disciple-making cultures in our own churches. Regardless, uh, the, the second mention of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ here is towards the end. Verse 19, for who is our hope and joy and crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Okay? So study this out with yourself, your pastors, and, and um, continue to learn what this flesh and blood side of this disciple-making relationship is. If you get on to chapter 3, we cultivate right growth patterns, and here's the, the fervency or the fervor of our expectant faith. Uh, Paul mentions here an, an, a desire to come see them, but he can't. He's hindered by Satan to come see them, end of chapter 2. And so chapter 3, what does he do? He sends this Timothy, this Timothy guy that he describes in Philippians chapter 2 as my son in the faith, and there is no one who has a like mind like with me like Timothy. He sends Timothy to go take a pulse on the church of Thessalonica to bring back a report. Now we know from this report that Timothy brings back uh, a, uh, you know, an A-plus grade. We see that here. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. If you go through chapter 3, you'll find the word faith five times. And you can do that on your own. Right? Certainly it was Paul's desire to have Timothy go see if they had a struggling faith or a thriving faith, a living faith. And as we just read in verse 6, he came back with that wonderful report. And if you look at verse 3, and then again verse 5, and then again verse 8, you'll notice three different um, realities of their Christian walk that they were enduring together in that flock. They were enduring affliction together in verse 3 and 4. They were enduring temptation together in verse 5. And then in verse 8, they're growing in their, in, their, in, in their faith, their stand. As you stand firm in the Lord, uh, there was something going on to such depth and meaningful relationship in their Christian walk together. These people, remember, they're not talking, Paul's not writing to the pastors here, he's writing to the people. You're helping each other walk through affliction, temptation. You are growing each other to stand more firm in your faith. And Timothy has nothing but good things to say about what's going on. And actually, the Thessalonian people were preparing themselves to see the Lord. What does he say in, at the third mention of the imminent return of the Lord in verses 11 to 13 in the text? It's powerful. The wording there is, is, is very clear. Our Lord, direct our way to you. cause you to increase in love for one another just as we also do for you. And here's a purpose clause. So that 
Your hearts may be established without blame before God our Father in holiness at the return of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Isn't that powerful? Now Paul's away. They're maintenancing their own discipling of one another, their own outreach into the community. We saw that in verses 8 and 9, 7, 8 and 9 of chapter 1. Their development of each other in Christ, every joint supplying, growing up in the fullness of him, is actually to the point where they're ready to see the Lord Jesus Christ and be confident before him at his appearing. And I find it interesting, you do study it out on your own, I find it fascinating that the attribute that Paul focuses on here by way of inspiration, the attribute of God is his holiness. His holiness. You can continue to disciple each other towards God-likeness and still be salt and light in the world without becoming like the world. There's a Christian college campus ministry that still exists. And that really was one of the ministries birthed out of Harold Ockengay's speech in 1949 at the National Association of Evangelical Speech in Sun Valley, California, where there was that great split of the NAE. Harold stood up and great, tremendous preacher of God's word, but he said something I don't think he would, when he saw the fallout of it decades later after he's home with the Lord, would have said, he said, we've gotten stuck. You can read the speech. I'm going to paraphrase it. We've gotten stuck, and we, we are the men that have come out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, right, of the 1920s, early 1900s. We've taken a right stand, but we've lost our evangelistic thrust, emphasis. So we're going to call on a, a new Christianity, he calls it. A new Christianity with a new attitude. And he goes on to, to speak in that speech of reaching people for Christ pretty much no matter what the cost. Now, we think we knew, know what he meant by that. But birthed out of that speech was a split in the new national, the NAE, and the, the whole new evangelical movement was started out of that. And that new evangelical movement has 51 different looks and flavors to it today. But at the underpinnings of that movement was a, a, a push towards what we would call a pragmatic evangelism. The ends justifies the means. If the end is to win a soul to Christ, quite a noble end, Right? then it justifies pretty much any means it would take to win that soul to Christ. And a lot of evangelical ministries across the world began to adopt that. So they began to compromise the way in which they lived and maybe the Lord had led them to not do something in their life or to do something in their life that they, they never used to do. They're moving towards God-likeness and, and in this particular college group, they would have no problem evangelizing in bars or, or going to partially nude beaches and giving the gospel and, 
and, and all these places that God saved them out of and from going to, all of a sudden, so they can win a soul, we're going to go back there and we're going to do these things because the ends justifies the means. It's a really slippery slope in a lot of different ways. But it's fascinating when you read the scriptures, and particularly this text, as the Thessalonians are developing each other in the word, right? They're, they're preparing to be presented before the Lord. They're already positionally holy. This is practical holiness, right? Second Peter chapter one says, for some people when they meet Jesus, it's not gonna be all happy of a moment. First John chapter two says the same thing. They're going, to some be, they're going to see Jesus in a shame, and they're going to be immediately ashamed. Okay. The Bible says God wipes all tears from their eyes. Those aren't all tears of joy. They're in heaven. They're children of God, but there's either an abundant entrance into heaven or there's a non-abundance, 1 2 Peter 1. And there's a confident entrance into heaven or there's an ashamed entrance into heaven, 1 John 2. But Paul says here for a discipling people, no one's perfect, but they're certainly growing towards Christ's likeness, that you would prepare to present yourselves at the appearing of Jesus Christ in the clouds, practically holy. You would not have to be ashamed. I think that's really important, especially in our culture where it seems like the world is taking over the church instead of the church reaching the world. It's amazing what you don't have to do as a young pastor or church plant or even as established pastor. It's amazing what you don't have to do or you don't have to have when you have a disciple-making culture. You don't have to be a tractional model in any way, shape, or form. This just blows away the worship wars of the last two decades. It's amazing what you don't need need when you have a disciple-making culture. Jesus still builds his church. Chapter 4, we'll focus here on their holy lives and the focus of their expectant faith. Certainly, they're going to continue. There's no paragraph break here in the original language. So chapter 3 flows over into chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. They're continuing those, in that holy walk, things that they've learned and the focus of their holy growth in verses three through eight, this is that moral countercultural way, this morally countercultural way in which they were living. In this particular time, there was worship done in the name of sexual immorality. I mean, these people are actually going to church now with other saved people they probably used to sleep with in the name of worship at the same temple just weeks, days, weeks, months before. So when he talks here about looking across the aisle, guys, and you see a girl that you slept with in the name of worship and she wasn't your wife because your wife was sweeping, sleeping with another guy in the name of worship, but both couples are born again now. When you look across the aisle, don't look at them. They're your brother. They're your sister now. Don't defraud your brother. Don't defraud your sister. They're gods. They're not their own and they're not each other's. They're God's. 
part of the reason for the intense persecution for this church because they, they started living morally in an immoral culture. Some of you, saved later in life, received some persecution when you started to live morally after living a morally upside down, inside out life. It's fascinating here. They were growing each other through this, along these lines. And verses 9 to 12 speaks of their freedom of their holy love. There's, Paul says here, you're growing each other so well, he doesn't have anything to teach them. Verse 9, now is to love of the brother, and you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love each other. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren, not only in Thessalonica, but Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, excel more and more. And then there's three practical ways that they were demonstrating this disciple-making love among one another. You make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That simply means in our language, you stopped making issues out of non-issues. It says it, tend to your own business. That just simply means mind your own business. And what does that mean? Disciple-making people don't have time to be intrinsically nosy people. People who are intrinsically nosy or are making issues out of non-issues are typically not disciple-making people. Disciple-making people don't have time to do either. And they have the greatest work ethic. Disciple-making people know that they need to have the greatest work ethic. You work hard with your hands... And that's a tremendous influence to those who are on the outside. That's what verse 12 says. So that you will behave properly towards outsiders. Those are people in need of Jesus. That's Paul's within without language, describing saved or unsaved people. So these people, as they're nurturing each other, speaking, thinking, speaking, living the word that they know together, that they're holding on to through these traveling letters without phones, without Bibles, they're growing in these very practical ways with one another in life. Lots of illustrations I can give on there, just not enough time. And then chapter five, they're pursuing godly goals and that's the future of their expectant faith. Verses one to five are all about disciple-making people living and learning and maturing to live with right perspective as children of light rather than children of darkness. Now as to the times and epics, verse 1, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety and then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you as a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but be alert and be sober for those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, and having put on the breastplate of faith, protect your heart and love and the helmet and hope of salvation. We're protecting our heads together, our hearts and our heads for God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. 
So they're children of perspective. They're working together and pursuing a godly team effort as children of the day, shouldering what it means to live life in dark times. They're doing this together. And how do we know that they've been doing this all along? Look what verse 11 says. Therefore, here's this concluding statement before the final couple paragraphs. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. And that last phrase is powerful, isn't it? It's very telling, very descriptive. Just as you also are doing or what just as you have been doing since day one. These were a connected people. You can't miss it. You can't miss it when reading this book. And remember, it's not directed to the pastors. Somehow the pastors had equipped the people to connect on a much deeper level theologically with life philosophy, and they were going out and living it in their communities as holy ones of God, living holy lives, still reaching people for Christ. Their gospel coasts were expanding. I really think verses 12 to 28 is really, really, quite frankly, 12 to 22 is a worship context as we close. You study it out on your own. There's a lot of, I think, worship realities. I would call it Sunday morning realities for us here in the language. But in verse 12 and 13, we have a, a well-discipled people having a tremendous influence of ministry and encouragement to those who oversee them in the Lord and in the Word, their pastors. I will tell you guys, for a third of my, really half of my ministry career, we'll call it 50-50, half of my ministry career, um, I couldn't have been less encouraged by our people, but in a disciple-making culture, discipling people, they really know how to encourage a pastor. They really do. They come up to you all the time and they say, you know what, pastor, you're letting us shepherd each other. You're feeding us what to study together. We're reaching together. And I'm telling you what, I just have one. I have no clue how you do what you do with more than one. There's so many times I want to quit shepherding one. So pastor, I just want to let you know I'm learning how to pray for you better because of what I'm enduring. <laughs> this ain't easy, is it? Nope, it's not easy. Changing a lot of spiritual poopy diapers. I get it. Two, three, four, five o'clock in the morning, there's spiritual blowouts everywhere all the time. I get it. And then you feed them well, and then they just puke on you because their bellies are too full. You got to go change. You get it, right? It's messy. How messy does it get? Well, look at verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. The Greek words makrothumia. It's not hupameno. Makrothumia, patient, just means patience with people. It's the same verb used for God's long-suffering with men waiting for them to be saved in 2 Peter 3.9. But what does he say? There's three kinds of people that these well-discipled people were willing to minister to and be patient with. Admonish the unruly. What does that mean? Christians can be rebellious. But these people who weren't pastors had the ability to nuthateo them because they were discipling them. Do you know how much easier it is to receive a rebuke from someone that knows you love them, who's your friend, that you're gonna stick with them through thick and thin? 
One of the most obnoxious things of my Christian experience growing up in a non-disciple-making church was grandpa so-and-so who felt he can go over and talk to teenage boy so-and-so because he saw them put his arm around his girlfriend in church and distracted her from the preaching. Grandpa so-and-so going over to teenage boy so-and-so and say, hey, Junior, control yourself. Don't be a distraction to the worship. What authority did he have to speak into that young man's life? He has no relationship with him. Right? But in a disciple-making church, when grandpa so-and-so knows who his dad is, and his dad's delegated co-discipleship, not just with mom, but with a dude in the youth group, a youth group leader, he can go to the youth group leader and say, hey, look, I love this kid, I love your son, I love your family. I just noticed it wasn't really distracting to me, but to the visitors behind them, a little distracting. I just thought you guys would want to know that so that you can help him kind of talk about that and let the disciples speak into their lives rather than some Grandpa Joe who doesn't know him, who feels like he's got some papal bull to share with this kid. He's going to blow this kid away spiritually and embitter the kid, provoke him to wrath. Does it need to be talked about? Yeah, but in the right context, right? Anyways, I wouldn't even call what that kid did with his arm around his girlfriend unruly, but nonetheless, um, it's just a normal, natural teenage kid thing to do, I suppose. But there are very much unruly people in the church, and yet these people were equipped to address the issue. Encourage the faint-hearted. This word faint-hearted just simply means someone that gets up and stumbles, gets up, stumbles, gets up and stumbles. Has trouble with their consistency in their walk. So apparently these people were able to help those kind of people too, among them. And then the final one here is the word weak. Help the weak. Study this out on your own. I've, I've researched and researched and researched and researched this word and as far as you want to understand the semantic domain of a word in that culture, so what that word meant to them has to mean the same thing to us, else we're not rightly dividing the word of truth and applying it. As far back as I can go with this word, this word very much indeed may have meant people in the church with chronic illness. I know the church isn't there primarily for social good, but I'm telling you, a disciple-making people they are very, very good at knowing their disciple and everything about them, including a chronic illness. You know, the average lifespan for a male in Jesus' day was 27 to 30 years old. So chronic illness, couldn't go to local Walgreens or CVS and pick up a prescription for everything, right? Chronic, chronic, chronic illness was chronic problem. But these people even knew how to take God's word and minister God's word to physically hurting people in a very meaningful way. It's really profound because they, they love that kind of way. Nonetheless, there's some little machine gun rapid succession here, present active imperatives that I think apply appropriately to our worship. You can figure that out on your own. And then what's the... Um, conclusion here in verse 23, may the, the very God of peace himself sanctify you, what? Completely unto maturity 
And may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame. Second time that's mentioned, chapter 3 in here, that blamelessness at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I love verse 24. Kind of reminds me of Philippians 1.6, right? Faithful is he who has called us, right? Who also will bring it to pass. It's all God's faithfulness functioning by grace through you to grow the body deeper into the word, to grow it up unto Christ's likeness and then out to the mission of Jesus Christ in our community. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the simple journey through this small letter. As we continue to extract the truth of this letter that you wrote to the Thessalonians, help us to do so, obviously, hopefully in a spirit-filled fashion asking you for wisdom to apply it to our lives personally and then to our churches corporately. Uh, Lord, we thank you for giving this church as, as a model of what this might be practically, spiritually. Lord, in each place in the state of Ohio, Iowa where these men come from, I pray that you would give them wisdom to build the disciple-making culture for their town, for their city, in a way that uh, is, is certainly pleasing to you, but certainly helpful for their flocks and spiritually influential for their communities. And Lord, I pray that the testimony of men in the state of Iowa would certainly influence states juxtaposed to them. And from these churches would sound out the word of the Lord throughout their state and their region and through the country and through the world. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray, amen.